Exodus 24, 1-11, hear the word of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Social movements come and most of them then just disappear and don't leave much of a trace. Uh, How many of you remember the Occupy Wall Street movement? Right, That wasn't that long ago. But it hasn't left too much of a trace. There was the 9-11 Truth Movement. Uh, those who were skeptical about whether this really was a foreign attack or whether it was it an inside job, and there's still some folks who consider themselves truthers, they're called. But that movement has, for the most part, I think, died out. There's also a movement called the Esperanto movement. Somebody got the idea that we should have an international language that can be used uh, across the board. And so there was a promotion of this, this new language that we were going to use. Uh, they kind of ignored the fact that we already have that. It's called English, right? It used to be Latin, and then other languages have, have, have uh, fulfilled that role, but it didn't really catch on. But how many of you have heard of the civil rights movement? Of course. Uh, what about the charismatic movement among Christians? Mm-hmm. What about uh, the disability rights movement? Now, what's the difference between these movements and those first ones that have just kind of fizzled off? Well, the movements that are enduring, they do one of two things, uh, or both at the same time. They go mainstream. If we think of the charismatic movement, there were just a, a few churches of a certain stripe that were part of that movement, and now you go to denominations of any sort, even our own, and we're singing the songs and uh, worshiping in ways that were associated with that charismatic movement. It went mainstream. Or what they do is they form institutions. So the civil rights movement was a movement of people, but now it has been enshrined in law. And so it has become institutionalized, and so it, it, it continues on. You can think of the disability rights movement as well. That has now been enshrined in law, and so there is great provision for those who are differently abled. If we think about God's covenant with Abram that we saw last week, 
we could think about this as something like a small movement. It was a family, uh, a man who received a call from God to leave his country, to go to another country, and it was an inspiring vision that God gave to this man that, that he would make a great nation out of him, that he would make his name great, that he would bless him and bless those who blessed him, that he would bless all the nations in him. A very big vision for one man who was older at the time, who had an older wife, and they didn't have any children. Uh, but this movement, we could think, would not continue if it didn't develop roots, if it didn't go mainstream, if it were, if it didn't develop institutions. Because uh, a calling to a man is one thing, a calling to one small family is one thing, and a development of an entire nation is Another thing, what does a nation need? A nation needs institutions. And that's what we have here. It's not surprising now where we are in the history of what God is doing in the Old Testament that we would have an institution or a series of institutions develop in the next installment of the covenant of grace. So where are we? We looked at the covenant of life, also called the covenant of works with Adam. And then we saw that uh, humans rebelled against that covenant and they, they distanced themselves from God. And then we saw that God entered into a relationship with them on the basis of His grace. So from the time they rebelled up through all of history, we're now in the period of grace, God's, God's favor towards sinners. And then we saw that God uh, called Noah and He saved Noah and his family through the ark. And then he also uh, promised that there would not be another flood that would destroy the earth. And we called that the, the covenant of preservation. And we saw that that was a covenant that was necessary for the rest of God's plan to be fulfilled. Because he couldn't fulfill his plan on the earth if there wasn't an earth. And so the preservation had to, uh, had to be assured before the rest of it could be fulfilled. Then, God calls Abram. That's what we saw last week. And we saw that God's plan for Abram, or his, his covenant with Abram, was all about promise. All that God was going to do. And we saw that God is the one who took upon Himself the responsibility to fulfill everything that He had promised to Abram and to his descendants. Now, let's fast forward to Exodus. Let's see where we are in the book of Exodus. Well, as God had promised, Abram had a son, and he had a son, and he had a number of sons, and they had a number of sons and daughters, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew. And they became this great nation. But at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find that they're a great people, but they're living in Egypt, so they don't have the land yet that he had promised them. They've multiplied greatly, but it's not really apparent that they're receiving much blessing because they have been enslaved by the Pharaoh of Egypt. And even worse, Pharaoh saw them as a threat because they were growing and multiplying so much that, that he passed a law that all of the baby boys should be executed upon birth. But one of them survived, and through a, an amazing series of, uh, of events, he was adopted by the daughter of the Pharaoh. And so he was raised in the Pharaoh's family, in the Pharaoh's court. And of course, his name was Moses. Moses, when he was 80 years old, living out in the desert, God called to him and said, go back to Egypt because I'm going to use you 
to bring my people out of Egypt. Then we have this series of confrontations between Moses and the Pharaoh, uh, God sending ten plagues upon uh, the Egyptians, and then after the tenth plague, Pharaoh finally relents and says, go, get out of here. And at that point, all of the Israelites or the Hebrews, they ask their, their overlords for things, and they, they, just, they, they gave them things. They gave them all sorts of valuable possessions, and so it, they plundered the Egyptians because the Egyptians just wanted them out of there. Well, Pharaoh then realized he had just lost all of his slaves. They get pinned up against the Red Sea, and as you know, God opens it. They get to the other side. They're rejoicing, but then they find themselves where? In the desert, in the peninsula of Sinai, and they're very happy about their escape, but now they are in the desert without food and without water. God miraculously provides for them. They travel some more, and they get to Mount Sinai. And that's where we're going to pick up the action here, because in chapter 19, they get to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God announces something. He announces His covenant. Oh, by the way, let's go back, let's go back to chapter 2, because I want you to see something here. How the covenant, how this thread of the covenant uh, goes through the history. In chapter 2, verse 23... It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so you see the continuity here. What did God remember? He remembered His covenant. Now let's go up to chapter 19. In chapter 19... Verse, verses 3 and 6, 3 to 6, God announces again covenant. Uh, at the end of verse 2, it says, there, there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now I want you to notice something here. There's a new aspect to this covenant that we haven't seen, or we haven't seen with such emphasis as we begin to see it here under Moses. This is the new thing about the covenant with Moses. And if you look at verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... This is a new idea, or a newish idea. There's a little bit of this with Noah, there's a little bit of this with Abraham, but now it comes out in full force. With Noah, with Abraham, the responsibility for keeping the covenant was on whom? It was on God. He's the one who said, I will do this, I will do that, I promise you, I take this upon myself. The responsibility to keep the covenant was on God. And now we find that in this covenant with Moses, we find that he is saying to the people, you need to keep my covenant. This is the new aspect of the covenant with Moses, that he's putting responsibility not only on himself, but he's putting responsibility on the people to fulfill what he commands them to do. Now, 
Let's remember how we respond to a promise and how we respond to a command. We saw last week that God gave Abram a promise. And then that great verse that is quoted twice in the New Testament, and Abram believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That he had a right standing before God. Why? Because he believed God. That's what you do with a promise. You can't obey a promise. You can't disobey a promise. The only thing you can do with a promise is believe the promise or disbelieve the promise. And in Abram's case, he believed the promise. Now, with this new aspect, this new aspect of, uh, of commandment, of law, of obligation, the people intuitively understood the right response to commandment. Look at verse 7 of chapter 19. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. What did they, what did they understand intuitively, immediately, about how to respond to a commandment? What should you do? Obey. Obey. How do you respond to a promise? You believe. How do you respond to a commandment? You obey. And they understood that that is what a commandment from God uh, deserves, that it should be obeyed. Now, what I want you to remember here and see is that we are in the period of the covenant of grace. And what that means is that this introduction of law is part of the covenant of of grace. This is not a going backwards. This is not an undoing of the covenant of grace. Rather, this introduction of law serves the purpose of grace. And that's what we'll see. In the, the rest of Exodus, what we have is, for the most part, law. And it's hard, isn't it? Uh, when we're reading along in the Old Testament, we read through Genesis, we find some of it Bizarre. We find some of it, much of it, very, very inspiring. We find that it explains many things about our own existence. And then we get to Exodus, and the first part of Exodus is exciting, and there's the, the confrontation and the liberation of the people and the dividing of the Red Sea. And then we get to Sinai. And uh, now we get law. And we get chapter after chapter of law, and then we have the, the minute description of the building of the temple or the tabernacle, and then we, we get to Leviticus, and what do we have? We have more laws, and there are all these sacrifices and relationships and all these things, and it's easy to get bogged down, and I'm sure many people who said they were going to read through the <laughs> Old Testament, uh, they get to that point and they get a bit bogged down. And so how can we look at these laws? How can we categorize them and, and put them together so we can have categories in our mind? Well, uh, now the people of God are not just a family. They are what? They're a nation. And so what does a nation need? We've already said it. They need institutions. And so many of these laws are institutional laws, or we could call them civil laws. They are laws about the governance of a nation. They needed that, of course, now that they had become a great nation. Now, these laws no longer apply to us. Why not? Because the nation of Israel was destroyed in 70 AD. The nation, as the manifestation of the people of God on earth, has gotten much greater 
Now it's not just one nation, it's people from all the nations. And so the civil laws, they expired with the passing of the nation of Israel. And we also find, when we get particularly to Leviticus, we find laws that have to do with the tabernacle, and have to do with the temple, and have to do with the priests, and have to do with the Levites and the sacrifices. These are ceremonial laws. Well, these were necessary because they were about to build the tabernacle. Well, what about today? What about these ceremonial laws? Well, the the temple, which was what took place after the tabernacle, it also was destroyed in 70 AD. And in addition to that, as we will see in Hebrews, all of these ceremonial laws were pointing forward and they have all been fulfilled in Christ. So they, they serve their purpose. So the civil laws have expired, the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled, and now we have another category of law. And the other category of law is the moral law. And the moral law expresses God's character. And the moral law tells us what He's like. And the moral law is to guide our lives and to guide our behavior. And that moral law has not changed and cannot change. Why? Because it is an expression of who God is. It it expresses His righteousness and His holiness. Now... All of this, to one degree or another, is introductory to the main text of today. But it was important to to have all this background to get to our main text, which is in Exodus chapter 24. And what we have here is the ratification of the covenant of law. The ratification. And we start out with the people of God being arranged in three different proximities or distances from God. In verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's uh, oldest sons. Aaron was Moses' brother, and Aaron was to be the chief priest. So, uh, you, that is Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from what? What's it say? Verse 1, Worship from afar. Afar. So they're to come up, but not too close. They're to come up and they're to worship, but they're to worship from afar. So the people are at the base of the mountain, and then these leaders are to come up, but not the whole way. They're to worship, but from afar. And then it says, verse 2, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So three different distances. The people, the leaders, and Moses. And then, Moses, having received the words from the Lord, came and told the people all the words, in verse 3. All the words and all the rules. And then once again, look at verse 4. The people instinctively knew, intuitively knew how to respond. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, there are Bible interpreters that say they made a mistake at that point that they shouldn't have responded that way. They should have rejected that and said, no, uh, we don't want this. Uh, we want to go back to the, the promises only. And we don't want these laws. But uh, I, I think that's misguided because when God tells you what you should do, the proper response is to say, we will do it. Now, were they mistaken in, with regard to their ability to do all that the Lord said that they should do? Yes. 
they were, they were mistaken about their ability, but, but the impulse of their expression was, was correct. God says, do this, and their impulse was, we will do this. Now, we'll find that neither they nor we have the capacity to do it as we ought, but that impulse is still the right and proper impulse. Next, they offered two types of sacrifices. In verse 4, it says, um, let's see, it says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, that's fascinating, by the way. Uh, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Here we have the beginning of our Old Testament. So that far back, we have the Word of God being written down, and we still have that in our hands today. And then it says, He rose early in the morning, and what he did is he built an altar representing the Lord, and then he built twelve pillars representing the twelve tribes. So altar representing God, twelve tribes, twelve pillars representing the people. And then there are two types of sacrifices, and it talks about all the animals that are sacrificed there. And the two sacrifices in verse 5 are the burnt offerings and the, sacri- and the peace offerings. The burnt offerings were completely consumed by the fire. They were completely burned up. The peace offerings, however, were, were cooked, basically, and they were available for food, which we'll see how that was used later. And what he did was he took the blood from the sacrifices and he divided it in two. So he divided some of the blood here and some of the blood there. And he took the blood, half of it, and he threw it against the altar, which represents God. And then once again, once he had written down all the words of the law, uh, then in verse 7 it says, Then he took the book of the covenant. Now, what he had written down, now it has a description. What's it called? The book of the covenant. And read it in the hearing of the people. And for the third time... Look how they responded. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, then in verse 8, the other half, and threw it against the altar. So, uh, saying, I'm sorry, not against the altar, but he threw it on the people, on the people in verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, this is an unusual sort of ceremony, and it's actually unique in the Old Testament. This is not repeated. This happens only one time like this. And unfortunately, it doesn't come with any explanation about what this means. But fortunately, fortunately, we have some clues in the text, and even more happily, we have a commentary on this in Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 9... In Hebrews chapter 9, it's on page 1108, also up here on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 and following, it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So even though the, there's no explanation in the ceremony itself, the writer to the Hebrews explains what it means. It means purification 
and it means the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we go back to the original story with that in mind, we see some hints of that, don't we? And this is fascinating. If you go back to the story and find out what happened after the shedding of blood, it says in verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the seventy of the elders, went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is remarkable. It's remarkable because he had just let them come up a little ways, but then he said they should worship from afar and they should not come near. Only Moses was allowed. But now that the blood has been shed, now they're able to go up to the Lord and it's written in cryptic language. It says they saw the Lord, but it never describes the Lord. It just describes the pavement and the vision. Uh, And it says that they ate and drank. And it says specifically, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He did not break out against them. Now, this is remarkable. What happened? What happened between them being kept at a distance and now being brought near and being able to eat and drink. And now we see what the peace offerings were for. To eat and drink uh, of the peace offering. What had happened? Well, what had happened was the blood had been shed. And so we see that even in the story, we find what it means. We find that it means forgiveness of sinners. We find what it means purification of sinners so that that they can come up to the Lord and His hand does not go out against them. And if we go back to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verses 13 and 14, we find the fulfillment of this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And the author to the Hebrews says that we are to draw near to God. How can we draw near to God? Well, the reason we can draw near to God is because the blood has been shed. And not just the the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the eternal Son of God become man. That's why we can have forgiveness of sins. And the promise is that all who believe will be able to draw near to God. All who believe will have their sins forgiven. All who believe will be purified and set apart. Now, that's what we need to believe. That's the promise. But you might ask the question, well, what about the law? Where does that come in? And throughout the centuries, and in the lives of individual Christians, we tend to get this wrong in one of two ways. When we think about law and grace. One way we get it wrong is that we treat the law like a new covenant of works. 
Something that we can do to try to gain eternal life. And I talk to people all the time, and I ask them about what might be their, their hope uh, to, to have a relationship with God, to, to be with Him, to be in heaven. And constantly they're telling me, well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. And as we've seen, that's a good thing, isn't it? But that's not and has never been the way to enter into relationship with God. The only way to enter into relationship with God is through the shed blood that He has provided. Now, that's one error. To treat the law as a way to try to gain God's favor and to to win His acceptance. That's what's called legalism. Salvation through law-keeping. That's one error into which we we constantly can, can be tempted to fall and into which the church has constantly fallen over and over and over again. But the other error is the opposite. And it's to say, we are saved by grace, uh, not the works of the law, and so we have nothing to do with the law, we are under no obligation to keep the law, we can do whatever we want, live however we want, and it doesn't matter. That's the opposite error, and that is called libertinism, from liberty, taking liberty and treating God's grace as a license to sin. Now, our text today corrects both of those errors, doesn't it? It corrects the error of legalism, because it says, how can you draw near? What is the only way you can draw near? It's through shed blood of another of the substitute that God Himself has provided. That's the only way to draw near. That's the only way to be forgiven. That's the only way to be purified. That's the only way to draw near and have a relationship with God. And so it corrects the error of legalism. But it also corrects the error of libertinism. Because it it presents God's law to the people. And the people respond and say, yes, this is what we will do. Now, if we ask the question, why should we obey God's moral law? There are at least a couple of real simple answers to that. The first one is this. Because it's God's moral law, this expresses what He's like. But if you need more incentive, the other answer is this. Because this is what's best for you. And if we think about this, Think about the Ten Commandments. Which is, which is better for you to worship the one true God or to worship false gods? Which is going to work out better for you? Uh, second question, what's going to be better for you to worship the one true God the way that He has required or to make some idols of your own and worship Him in that way? I think the answer is obvious. What's going to be better for you to learn with your thoughts and words and actions to, to respect God and His name or to treat His name with contempt? What's going to be better for you? What's going to be better for you to work seven days a week constantly or to have a day off to rest? What's going to work out better for you in your life and in your family and in your future to honor your parents or to dishonor your parents? What's going to be better for you to respect life or to take it? What's going to be better for you and your marriage to 
to be faithful to one another or to be unfaithful to one another? Uh, what's going to be uh, better for you to, to take that which is not yours or to earn that which you need? Uh, what's going to be better for you to, to tell the truth and to testify to that which is true or to be uh, to develop, develop the pattern of lying? What's going to be better for you to develop contentment with that which you have or always to be longing for what other people have? Do you see how the Ten Commandments work? Therefore, our... Good. It's God's law, but it's also the best thing for us. Let's think about how this works. How do soldiers become soldiers? They don't become soldiers by obeying their commanding officers, do they? They become soldiers by signing up, by getting recruited, but then once they're soldiers, what do they do? They obey their commanding officer. So you don't become a soldier by obeying a commanding officer. No, you obey a commanding officer because you're a soldier. What about children? How do children become children? Well, there's one of two ways. Children become children by being born children or by being adopted as children. That's how the only ways to become children. Children do not become children by obeying their parents. Children obey their parents. Why? Because they're children. Do you see how this works? Christians don't become Christians by obeying the law of God. Christians become Christians by believing the gospel, that God has provided the, the perfect sacrifice for us that we might be forgiven and purified and have a relationship with Him. That's the only way to become a Christian. But having become a Christian through God's grace, through faith in Christ then what do Christians do? Christians obey God. And somewhere along the way, we figure out that that's the very best thing for our lives. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that You have taken care of everything. That You have made a way for us to have a relationship with You. And it wasn't something that we did, it's what you did in providing Jesus Christ for us, who was that perfect sacrifice who gave himself for our sins and rose from the dead. And I pray for all of us, as we hear this message again, that we would respond to promise by believing. And we thank you that you have provided not only for that relationship, but you provided for our lives. And even as we sang today, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. We thank You that You have provided for all of our life that we might have that which is most pleasing and honoring to You and that we might have that which is best for us. We thank You, O God, that we can enter into relationship with You through faith in Christ and that You have given us Your holy law so that we might walk before You in joy all the days of our lives. And we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.